How do you know if a church is alive? How do you know that a church is full of life? Is it a big, beautiful building? Is it a full congregation? A congregation where they've got a whole stadium packed out. Is that how you can tell if a church is alive? Full of life? How about correct doctrine? Maybe, maybe that's what you measure, you use as your measuring stick for life of a church. Maybe they've got to have correct doctrine and that's it. And that's how you know if a church is alive or not. How do you know if a church is full of life? That's what we'll be discussing today as we turn towards Revelation and we continue our study of hopeful Revelation. So we're walking through Revelation, and the reason why we titled it Hopeful, the way we've spelled hopeful, is because Christians should be full of hope. Out of all people, we should have hope. In times of despair, in, time, in troubling times, in times of pandemic, we know that we can hold on to the hope of Christ because we know how it's going to end. We know that when all is said and done, when it ends, Jesus wins. And we can hold on to that hope. No matter what we're going through in life, no matter what kind of pain we're struggling with, we can still have hope. So it's hopeful. And we started off with the introduction, and then we got into the first of four visions. The first of four visions is seven different letters to seven different churches. So we've been walking through these letters, and we've caught up to the church in Sardis. So let's go to the next slide real quick here. So we've been walking through these churches. John is in Patmos. He writes, the first church is Ephesus. And this is, this is the route that these letters would take. So we've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. So we're up to Sardis at this point. We'll go ahead and read through it. And then we'll pick it apart a little bit. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what, at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, there's a lot going on, so let's dig in. And to the angel of the church in Sardis. So Sardis is that cultural context. So to understand this, this letter, we have to understand this cultural context, or at least it will help us understand those, this letter. So Sardis is really, uh, I, I think it's really defined by two cities within a city. So there is the necropolis and the acropolis. So the necropolis and the acropolis. Polis means city, so we've got necropolis, ne neko mean dead, polis, city. So it's a graveyard. This graveyard was famous. It was, uh, typically they would bury the dead within the city somewhere, but this graveyard was set aside. It was a city dedicated to the dead, and they made these huge, elaborate 
tombs. It was a place that people might want to go to visit. It's, it reminds me kind of the, of the, uh, the graveyards in New Orleans. I've never gone. I've never really wanted to go. But I know there are people that make special trips to New Orleans just to go visit the graveyard because they've put so much into this graveyard. And it is such, you know, the graveyards there, they're, they're I guess, from what I've heard, are pretty magnificent. So that's what you could kind of think of with this necropolis. They highly valued this necropolis, the city to the dead. And they had, as a culture, they had a fixation with this death, with death in the graveyard, in the dead. It's going to come into play in this letter. So there's the necropolis, but there's also the acropolis. The acropolis was an elevated city, and this acropolis was considered to be an impregnable fortress. So people could not penetrate this Acropolis. It was elevated about 1,500 feet in the air. Three sides were sheer cliffs, and one side was very, the fourth side, I should say, was very difficult terrain to get up. So they thought that they were undefeatable for several years, and they, they built this empire around Sardis. It, it became the capital of the Lydian Empire, not many people are familiar with the Lydian Empire, and there's a reason. Because they became so arrogant, and they thought they were so unbeatable, that during the Persian Empire, they decided to attack Cyrus. Well, there's a reason why you know of the Persian Empire, but not the Lydian Empire. They lost. And upon their retreat, the Persian Empire and Cyrus, who was a little bit mad, like, how dare you attack me? followed them back, and they, they went up to the Acropolis, and they hunkered down, they were ready for the siege, and they thought, there's no way they can get up. They even need to know, on this fourth side, they have to know the special route to get up. And so the, the Persian Empire started to lay the siege, but the people of Sardis thought so highly that at night... They would just go to sleep. They wouldn't even watch over. And one day, one of the soldiers dropped his helmet. Not knowing that there was a spy watching him, he snuck down to get his helmet. And then he snuck back up. The Persian spy went back to his commander, notified him of this way to get up, and at night, while well, no one was watching because they were so safe in this Acropolis, the Persian army walked in freely, and the victory was won before the people of Sardis even woke up. Well, eventually, they rebuilt. They came back to power. And Antiochus, several hundred years later, wages war against Sardis. Once again, the people of Sardis believed they were undefeatable in the Acropolis, so they retired back to the Acropolis. They, they believed, they didn't learn their lesson from the first one. They didn't look back at history and say, oh wait, some people can figure this out. So they go back to the Acropolis and they think, once again, we are undefeatable. Let them lay siege. We'll, we'll wait it out. So they go back to the Acropolis, and this time, one of the expert climbers of Ant Antiochus's army found a way up. He was a special climber. He knew how to climb. He figured it out. And at night, once again, when they thought they were safe, he showed the rest of the military how to scale 
this wall. And at night, as they lay sleeping, the victory was given over. So twice they thought they could, they could win, so they fell asleep, and twice they were defeated. They ended up not becoming a military city again, but they uh, became known for uh, the birthplace of dyeing wool. So that becomes the major industry, and they become this city that, that isn't very well known. They become this city that uh, doesn't have any political power, doesn't have any real well-known trades, and they just kind of start living in the past. Their, their city slogan might be something like, Sardis, we could have been really great had we not fallen asleep. Maybe, Sardis, come and visit and learn about how horrible we were in the past. You know, something along those lines. It was, Sardis, we were really awesome at one point, but now we're just kind of average because we fell asleep. That would be their, their city slogan. Have you ever known a city like that? A city that used to be great, but now is dead. And everybody in that city is still living in the past. Everybody in that city is still talking about how great we were. We could have been something, but we kept falling asleep. That's the cultural context that this letter comes to, to this church. So, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So once again, this is pulled out of the introduction that we read a few weeks ago. Seven, we have learned that that is the number of completion. Uh, so the seven spirits of God is oftentimes a reference to the Holy Spirit, but it can also be a reference to life. Spirit can also mean life. So this is symbolic not just of uh, the Holy Spirit, but of life. God is the author of life, and he is the giver of life. So the, the seven spirits and the seven stars, What basically what he's getting at here is he's emphasizing the, the authority and sovereignty of Jesus, both uh, for our life, well, specifically for life. So it's the authority and sovereignty of Jesus for life. That's what he's emphasizing in this introduction. I know your works. Now, we've gone through several different letters already, and he has gone through different works. He's talked about different works, and typically these works are strengths. So if you look back towards... Uh, well, even Thyatira last week. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance. Those are all good works, right? So we would say those were the strengths of Thyatira, that they had love, that they had patient endurance, that they had faith. Those are strengths. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So their works aren't even a strength here. Their works are actually their weakness. Unlike Thyatira, unlike these other churches, their works are their weakness. So they have a reputation. The term reputation here literally means name. And for, the, for uh, people in antiquity, a name was your identity. That's one of the reasons why Jesus renames apostles. 
because there was, so, there was identity wrapped up in this name. So in this name, and that's why our translations say reputation, because in this name is their identity, their reputation, how people from outside viewed them. So they have this reputation, this name, that they've been working very hard to obtain. And it's of being alive. So they've been working really hard for people in the outside world. They've been working really hard for other churches to view them as this church that is full of life. They've been working hard to have a reputation where they would be uh, influencers, where they could, you know, have some, some kind of political authority. They've been working really hard so that everyone around them would look at them and say, well, that is a church that is alive. They've been working really hard thinking through how do others think of us. We want others to think of us in a certain way. And so we're going to work to make sure that they actually see us that way. We want them to think we are a church that is full of life. What does it mean to be a church full of life from an outsider perspective? Let's begin to fulfill that. but they are dead. The problem is, as humans, we were created to worship something. And if we're not worshiping God, oftentimes what we end up worshiping is ourselves. And how we worship ourselves is we start to look for the applause and the approval of others. And that's a dangerous drug to be hooked on. Because once you start getting the applause and the approval of others, and once you start shifting your life to look like that, then you quit worshiping God and you begin to worship yourself. And once you've got a little bit of applause here, then you start to conform your doctrine, you start to conform your church, your methodology, you start to conform even what you believe to what the culture approves. And so little by little, they started following the cultural approval so that they could be a church that they thought was full of life. They no longer worked for the approval of God, but they worked for the approval of man. And what the culture around them said was, you're a church full of life, but what God says is, you are dead. The culture of Sardis was fascinated with death. And when you seek the approval of a culture of death, it produces a church that is dead. When you seek the approval of a culture of death as a church, you become dead. Dead here is the literal dead, but it also is symbolic for uh, 
walking in unrighteous for, for a path. A couple summers ago, we walked through Proverbs, and we learned in Proverbs that there were two paths you could take. You could take the path of righteousness, or you could take the path of the wicked and the fool. Here, what he's saying is that the church of Sardis has decided to reject the path of righteousness, the path of God, and have taken up the path of the fool and the wicked. That's what he's getting at. You are no longer alive, you're no longer walking the path of life, but you are walking the path of the foolish and walking the path of the wicked. And so then he gives them a solution. And in this solution, there are five imperatives. Imperatives are commands with urgency. So he's telling them to act on this. And not just wait a year or two to act on this, but act on it now. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So we've got five imperatives. The first of these imperatives that they need to do, that they need to act with a sense of urgency on, is to wake up. The, the term here means to literally just become alert. Become alert. You've been sleeping on the job. You've been like those guards from, from years ago that fell asleep while they were on siege. You think that there's not pressure building to change you. You think that you can hit cruise control. You think because the world sees you as alive that you can hit cruise control, you can coast, and you can feel good, but you need to be alert because there are forces, there is pressure trying to change you, trying to shape you, trying to pull you away from God. And it was true for the church of Sardis. It is true for the church today. It is true for you today. It is our tendency to hit cruise control. I don't know about you, but I love cruise control. I love to get on the interstate and bring it up to the speed limit that I'm comfortable with and hit cruise control. And then I forget about what the speed limit is. I don't have to pay attention anymore. I can just enjoy a conversation with my wife. We love cruise control. The problem is we do it in our spiritual life too. We've come to a certain spot where we feel like we're really, we've achieved something, so we hit cruise control. And instead of maturing and growing in God's grace, we start to slow. And although you can never lose the righteousness that God has placed you in, you may not be maturing in that righteousness. You may not be growing in God's grace because you have hit cruise control. So what's the solution? The solution is to wake up. Become alert. Don't doze off at the wheel. There are forces that are trying to manipulate you, that are trying to pull you away from God. And if you're on cruise control, you will start to let them pull. So wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So wake up means to, to or sorry, to strengthen means to support or to lift up. 
Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about this church before I got hired on is they uh, hadn't had a pastor for several years, and, and they, we were dwindling in and, uh, capacity. And so the elders and the congregation gathered together and said, we can't support everything, but what can we support? And they decided Awana was what they were going to support. And so they supported Awana, and they kept Awana alive, and they kept Awana going. That is what they decided to support. There are things that God calls every church to support. We can't do it all. Just because a church is busy with programs doesn't make that church alive. It makes that church busy. So as a church, God has an assignment for us. We need to be asking, what is our assignment? What is it that God has called us to? As elders and deacons, as we've, as we've been thinking through worship, we highly value worship. And part of that is because if we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else, right? If we're not worshiping God, we're going to worship something else, and that thing will most likely be myself, yourself. We'll worship ourselves. Larry's coming to a point where he's ready to not lead worship. We highly value worship. And that's one of the reasons why we think it's important to support worship. And, and the business meeting tonight, we'll talk more about that. But that's one of the reasons why we feel called to that. So we need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. So that's where we get that they're not completely dead yet. We could think of like the princess bride where he says, You're only, he's only partial dead, right? He's only partially dead. So, so the church isn't fully dead, it's only partially dead. But there is something that remains, and we need, they need to strengthen that thing that remains. And he continues, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This term, not found, is a uh, forensic term, meaning that he's been searching. He's been doing the, the research. He's been methodically weighing the case. He's been looking very thoroughly at their works. And what has he found? That they are not complete. Their works are not complete in the sight of my God. Sardis, out of all of these churches so far, Sardis is the only one that hasn't struggled with persecution. We look at every other church that have struggled with persecution. And why hasn't Sardis struggled with persecution? Because they slowly let the culture influence them. We've been talking about how when the cultural pressure starts to heat up, what does the church do? And we've seen different churches react in different ways. Some churches begin to compromise and they say, well, you know... That God isn't real anyway, so I could just give lip service and, and, and we'll be okay culturally. And then other churches say, well, all truths lead to the same place, right? So, so we can go ahead and we can worship their gods with them and we'll be okay culturally. We won't have to suffer in persecution. The church in Sardis didn't even bother with it. They said, we'll just comply. That's why they had a, a reputation for life. 
because they said, we're just complying. We're just going to go ahead and we're going to make good friends with everybody in the culture and we're going to tell them that what they want to hear so that we don't have to suffer persecution. And so they don't suffer persecution. And so their works are not complete. He has not found complete works in God. Because what they've done is compromised with the culture so much that you can't even tell the difference between the church and the culture. And then we get to our third imperative, remember. Remember means to recall and act upon. It's not just memorization. I love Awana. I love scripture memorization. My kids and I work on scripture memorization together. But just because you've memorized scripture doesn't mean you're actually following scripture. In fact, sometimes it can just puff you up with pride. You know how much scripture I've got memorized. That means I'm more righteous than you, right? To give you an example, Proverbs 15.1 is the first verse my mom had me memorize. It was probably over 35 years ago that I memorized Proverbs 15.1. Anybody know it? I see some hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For a, a harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. Sometimes I flip those, but that's, that's it. A harsh answer stirs up anger, or a harsh word stirs up anger, a gentle answer turns away wrath. It was good for my mom to help me memorize that so many years ago. One of the first verses we've taught our kids. So over 35 years ago, I memorized this verse. But when did I start applying it to my life? I can tell you, there was a long time in my life where I knew that, that verse, and I could recite it to you, you could ask me of it, and I would just, I would just give it to you. But did I actually live by it? No. Someone would make me angry, and what would I do? I'd give a harsh word. And what would that do? That'd stir up their anger, and I'd be angry, and we'd just be angry together, yelling at each other with harsh words. It wasn't until I, probably around the time I got married with Jen, so 11 and a half years ago, that I started to figure it out, that it started to click in my mind, that I can't just say harsh words to people and expect them to take it well. But I had to be gentle. To be gentle means to handle with care. I had to handle her heart with care. And so I might have something that is truthful because that was oftentimes my excuse, right? Well, I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, Aaron, you're telling the truth, but you're saying it in such a jerk way. Quit being a jerk about it. Just because you have the truth doesn't mean you can be a jerk. So say it with gentleness. Say it with care for her heart. And what's amazing is as I started to submit to it, and there were times I wanted to say something in a, in a harsh way, but I'd have to recall that verse. So first I had to memorize the verse, right? And then I had to recall that verse, and I had to actually act upon that verse. And even though I wanted to say that harsh word, I'd have to say, whoa, what's that going to produce, Aaron? It's going to produce your wife's wrath. That's no fun. So instead, think about a way to say it gently. So you see, it's not just about remembering. It's about recalling and acting upon. Just because you have verses memorized doesn't mean you're living it out. 
So recall it and submit your life to it. Act upon it. When Scripture tells you to be gentle, stop and be gentle. So they need to recall, then, what you received and heard. What you received and heard, uh, received means the things that the apostles taught them. So the apostles, the office of apostle was a special office. Apostle simply means sent with authority. So the church had apostles that were just sent from one church to another, saying this church is sending this apostle with the authority of the church. But then there was also the office of apostle, where this person was sent with the authority of Christ. We believe that, that there are no longer the office of apostle. Sorry, I should say we, we believe that the office of apostle no longer exists today. Because you can't be sent with the authority of Jesus. You had to have known Jesus. You had to have walked with Jesus. And so there still might be apostles that are sent with the authority of a church, but not with the authority of Jesus. This is a specific reference to the office of apostle. So what you received from the office of apostle, the people that were directly taught by Jesus, who went with the authority of Jesus, who now were teaching the churches with the authority of Jesus. So that's what that's a reference to. So remember what the apostles told you, and then what you heard. What you heard was a reference is a reference to the Bible. So the apostles taught the churches, and then the churches would repeat that teaching, and then that teaching would continue to get passed down. That's what they need to recall. That's what they need to recall and act upon, is the teaching, the sound teaching of the churches and the apostles. And that's what we still need to do today. We need to recall and act upon the sound teaching that we find in the Bible. That's really what it boils down to. There are churches that want to twist and manipulate Scripture, and what we need to do is go back to Scripture and say, wait, what does it really say? What does it really mean? So that's what they need to recall and act upon. And then he says, keep it. To keep it means to guard or protect. Guard and protect the doctrines of the church as if it is a treasure. I think of it as like, I, I want to protect my marriage. My marriage is a treasure. It's something I cherish. And so if ever there was a woman that came into my life and said, you know, I'm going to have an affair with you one day. I would say, okay, that's the last time I'm talking to you. See ya. Peace out. You can't, you can't be around me anymore. You, you're, you're actively trying to have an affair. I'm going to guard. I'm going to protect my marriage. I'm no longer even going to talk to you because I am going to actively guard and protect my marriage. But do we actively guard and protect Scripture? Do we actively keep it in our lives? Or do we let people twist it? Do we listen to people that we know don't have an accurate view of Scripture? But you know, they make some really good points, so we might as well just listen to them. We need to make sure we're guarding what we are learning. So keep it, and then repent. Repent is the last one, and to repent means to turn around, to do a 180. So these, this, these people in this church have been sleeping, right? They've, been, they've fallen asleep. They, they've needed to be on guard. There's pressure blowing up. There's people trying to pull them in every, in every kind of different direction. And they've been sleeping. 
So the church has been pulled in every direction. They've, they've blended in with the culture. And what he's saying is, wake up. Turn around. Quit slumbering. Quit sleeping. Be alert. You need to watch out because there, there is a culture of death that wants you to conform to it. Don't conform. Stay alert. There are people that are going to come in and they're smooth talkers and they're going to try to convince you to have an affair. The first step is to even identify that there are people that want to do that. There are people that want to ruin your life. You need to actually recognize that. So you have to be alert. You have to wake up. You have to repent from being this lazy church that's on cruise control. Though you've convinced the world that you're alive, you're dead. Then he gives a warning. If you will not wake up, you won't repent. If you will not get off of cruise control, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Now this is a reference, this, this has several different references into it, uh, but the cultural reference here is that back to what Cyrus and Antiochus once did. The city was asleep. They thought they were perfectly safe. And an invading enemy conquered them. And what he's saying is, just like Cyrus and Antiochus were able to conquer, you won't even see it coming. Now, some people might think that this is the second coming. This is not a reference to a second coming, but a special judgment reserved for this church that is dead. It is a, it is a warning we need to heed. It is a warning we need to pay attention to. He's not saying it directly to the American church. But if he can come because the church in Sardis is sleeping, and he can come and he can discipline the church in Sardis, you better believe he can come and he can discipline the church in America that might be caught sleeping. And then he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white. So what he's saying here is, is although the church for the most part is dead, there are still a few who are awake. There are still a few who have not conformed so much to the culture that you can't even tell a difference. There are still a few that are holding tight to the Word of God, that are holding fast, that are awake, that are keeping guard, that are keeping and guarding Scripture, that are making sure that, that the false teachers aren't twisting it so much. And these people... To say that they have not soiled their garment is a play on that uh, industry of dyed wool. He's saying, you're not. You're not like the rest in Sardis who, who just want to dye their wool. But you will walk with me in white. You're going to be different. This term, walk, is a victory procession. So what he's saying is, unlike those in Sardis who felt the sting of defeat, who are living in the past, you can look towards the future and know that you will be walking in victory with God. So you will walk in victory in white. 
meaning you will not be defiled by the, church, by the rest of the church in Sardis and the rest of the culture in Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. And what he's getting at there is in ancient times they would keep a list of membership. They would kiss a, keep a list of, I should say, citizens who were in that city. And they could blot out your name. They could cross out your name. If you died, they might cross out your name. If you left for another city, they might cross out your name. If you committed a crime that was worthy of blotting out your name, they would blot out your name saying you're no longer a citizen here, you're no longer welcome, get out. You're no longer a citizen. And what Jesus is saying here is that you, if you follow Christ, if you are submitting to Scripture and living by Scripture, the city of Sardis might blot out your name. And you might lose citizenship in Sardis. But in the kingdom of God, you will be considered a citizen. And that citizenship you can never lose. Your name will never be blotted out. You will be a permanent residence. I don't know about you, but a city who's living in the past, or a kingdom that's guaranteed a future, I'd much rather choose the kingdom that's guaranteed a future than live in the past. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Once again, this is a letter to a specific church, but then we find that it's to all churches everywhere. It is written for our church today. So how do you measure a church that's alive? Is it by the building? Is it by full pews? Is it by a certain worship style? Correct doctrine? The temptation for every church, the temptation for every Christian, is to conform to the surrounding culture. To hear the applause of politicians, to hear applause of people on social media, and to begin to conform to man's opinion. But the church that is alive is a church that has an audience of one. A church that is alive is a church that cares about God's opinion more than man's opinion. And therefore, instead of conforming to man's opinion, conforms to God's word. And that is the church that is alive. That is the church that we hope to be. And that is my prayer, that you as a Christian would have a passion, a desire to live for God and not for man. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it, that you gave it to us, that you inspired apostles and prophets to write it. We pray, Lord, that we would hold tight to it, that we would guard it, that we would protect it, that we would keep it. 
that we would submit to it, that we would recall it and act upon it, that we may be not a dead church, but a church that is alive. In your name we pray.